Scripture reading this morning will be in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14. And the pew Bibles in front of you, it'll be on page 1054. 1054. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 14. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. I think back to a week ago and how we gathered here and it was dark outside. You pulled in with your headlights on and uh, what a weekend it was. And to see your, your generous spirit, to see your giving, whether it's through your resources or your time, has been amazing. And I want to encourage you to uh, think about that. We're thinking about stewardship all month, this month. And there are so many people within... 30 or 40 or 50 miles of us who need help. Many of you have helped them hours upon hours this week. I'm sure many of you will continue this next week. And there are uh, communities around us that you don't have to wait for an organized effort. If you are not aware of this, there are communities where individuals or couples are just walking up to doors, knocking on doors they do not know, and they're seeing things happening in that house, and they're saying, can we give you a hand? Absolutely, and they work there the rest of the day. And uh, if you want to be a part of an organized effort, we have those organized almost every day, leaving out of here and telling you where you can meet and where you can go. Uh, Jonathan Pettis, JP, is organizing that from our standpoint, uh, just being a resource to connect you to places you need to go and things that can be done. And uh, we'll be talking more uh, today, I'm sure, about even things that we can do in the future. Uh, let's make sure that we look at this opportunity as a way to give God the glory for all that he's given us and use what he has given us as a resource. It's wonderful yesterday to have the single mom's car care clinic. And all of you that worked in that, over 20 women were helped. And what a blessing that was in their life and what a blessing it was to be able to give and to be a part of that day. And we're grateful for that opportunity. Also, I want to tell you about an opportunity that some are calling the forgotten disaster. At the time that the earthquake struck Haiti, it received world attention and overshadowed the earthquake that struck Chile. Uh, Chile's earthquake was 8.8 .8 in magnitude and it lasted for 90 seconds. That's five times the magnitude of the earthquake that hit Haiti. And the devastation uh, is in uh, miles and miles, covering over 300 miles of devastation. Over 50,000 people were without homes. Hundreds of people died. And a result of this, Forest Park Church Christ in Valdosta, Georgia, we've worked with them for many years, and especially the last 10 years in El Salvador. Uh, they have asked for an emergency trip to go to Chile and to help with the efforts there. They needed a doctor, and so they called Aaron Crisp, and Aaron has also asked a few others, and there are at least four that are going to go on this trip that will be leaving in just a couple of weeks. It's May the 28th. Aaron, 
Angel Thomas, Rachel Crisp, and Tim Thomas will be going on this trip. Uh, two containers have already been shipped down. One container is full of enough lumber to build 10 homes for those individuals in the community that they'll be going into. Others will be going down to serve on the medical staff, and others will be going down to serve on the construction uh, crew to build uh, the houses, and then others will go for the evangelistic efforts. Obviously, uh, your donations to them would help tremendously. They need $1,800 a person just to pay for the airfare and then also the team expenses uh, to be able to put this team together. Uh, it is approaching winter in Chile. Uh, June and July is their winter months. Uh, a lot of us are used to Latin American countries where it doesn't get cold. In Chile, it does get cold. It gets rainy and cold. And so we're trying to get the container of winter clothes there. Many people are still living in tents, and we're trying to be able to help them have what they need uh, to be able uh, to survive and do well. Uh, along with all of the other damage that's taken place, uh, there was a second earthquake that took place right after the first one that, that registered over six on the Richter scale. And, and because of the tremors that continue, there, there's a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome in their area. And so they're asking people to come in and be a comfort to them and to encourage them. And no doubt, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ is one of the most comforting and most peaceful things that we could ever offer to anyone. And so we're thankful to have that opportunity. Uh, many of us have kind of stood in awe of how could we have such devastation in Middle Tennessee and be ignored throughout the national media. And I'm sure Chile feels somewhat the very same way uh, because they have been ignored because of uh, the earthquake in Haiti. And so we want to do our part to help Haiti. We want to do our part to help Chile. We want to do our part to help our brothers and sisters here. And, and obviously, all of us individually cannot do everything. But all of us together can make great impacts to our neighbors, uh, to, to other people even around the world. And so be prayerful. Be thinking about what you can do. And if you want to give uh, to the work in Chile, uh, that collection is being taken right now. You could give it to one of the elders, Buddy Pickler, or if there's someone at the Information Center, afterwards you could give them a check and just make it out to the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. Happy Mother's Day. To those of you that are mothers, uh, you have obviously a special place in someone's heart. And just the idea of motherhood is special to us. Uh, I want to begin with a little humorous thing this morning. There, there's several. I'll only read a few. But it's things my mother taught me. My mother taught me a lot about religion. She would say, you better pray that that comes out of the carpet. She taught me a lot about logic. She would say, because I said so, that's why. She taught me more about logic. If you fall out of the swing and break your neck, I'm not taking you to the store with me. She taught me about irony. Keep crying. I'll give you something to cry about. She taught me about contortionism. Uh, will you look at that dirt on the back of your neck? She taught me about weather. This room of yours looks like a tornado went through it. She taught me about medical science. If you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to freeze that way. She told me about how to become adult. If you don't eat your vegetables, you'll never grow up. And then perhaps the best of all, she taught me about justice. One day, you'll have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. You know, when we think of the beauty of motherhood, and this morning, I'd like for us, because of our theme throughout May of stewardship, I'd like for us to think more of the aspect of motherhood as it relates to stewardship. 
when we think of Psalms 127 and verse 3, we are reminded of where children come from. I know that mothers are reminded that they come from the womb, but the Lord reminds us where that gift comes from. Psalms 127 and 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Notice that. From the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a reward from God. And so in other words, God has placed a gift in our hand and we are responsible with what we do with this gift of children. And of course, God wants us to raise children so that we point them back to the Father from which they came. And when we consider motherhood and we consider this great responsibility, they're stewards of the souls of of children, what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity they have to affect eternity. It's a great responsibility, but it's a wonderful responsibility. Now, I'd like for you to go back to the text that was capably read and look there in 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter. This particular paragraph is a little bit unusual paragraph in the Bible. This is one of the few paragraphs where the Lord gives very specific teachings to what's the responsibility that the church and the family has to widows. And so it's in this unusual paragraph that we have some insight about motherhood. And he says to the young widows, and now notice this again in 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Did you notice the order there? Marry, bear children, manage the house. When we think of stewardship, we think of the importance of getting things in the order that God has given them to us. In other words, as you look at this next slide, you and I, if well, depending on what age you are, if you're probably around my age, you are older, you are very, very accustomed to that little rhyme that, that you sang in elementary school when you saw a, a boy and a girl that liked each other and you, you sung that little chanting rhyme of first comes love, second comes marriage, and third comes whoever pushing a baby carriage. Ask kids today if they sing that. Now, why do you think kids wouldn't be singing that today? Do you think they would pick that little rhyme up watching any of their television shows? you think they would pick that rhyme up listening to their music that's popular today? you think they would pick that rhyme up just listening to people talk out in our communities? Please get this. From God's Word, you and I have a huge responsibility to promote what God promotes. God promotes order in lives. God promotes literally first things first, then second, then third. As good stewards, we need to promote those same things. And when we fail to do that, anytime we fail to follow God's plan, we're not going to receive the greatest blessings that God's plan can offer for us. So as we think about the stewardship and the order that God gives. Drop back, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, and let's think about the stewardship of our very own physical bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, it's about 1,016 in the Bible, it's in your pews. 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. 
Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now let's pause here for just a moment and state the obvious. You're aware of the fact that there would be no children born outside of wedlock nine months from now if everyone today stopped practicing fornication. Now think how simple that is. Now I know somebody says, oh, you're, you're dreaming, that would never happen. We're talking about God's plan and the beauty of it. So just think for just a moment of God's plan and the beauty of it. If everybody today stopped practicing fornication, there would be no one delivering a baby nine and a half months from now. No one would be delivering a baby and the nurse come in and say, uh, are, are you married to the father of this baby? No. No, we decided not to get married. You group together any ten babies across America today, and four of them have been born to a woman who is not married. Four out of ten are born to women who are not married. We're not talking about statistics that reveal mistakes. We're not talking about statistics that reveal individuals saying, well, I, this was a mistake. We're sorry that, that it happened this way. We realize it was a sin. We're talking about in the last 20 years, something that has become a norm and even exalted. In other words, something that is a decision where many women are deciding, I don't want to marry, but I do want a child. Stewardship. If we are going to be a steward of our body, fornication is against God's will. Well, let's read on why it's against God's will. Look at what well, he's already said in 18, it's a sin, and it's a sin against our own body. But look at 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That's powerful. When we are Christians, our body is not our own body to do with whatever we want and to start a family however we want. When our body truly belongs to the Lord, then we say, Lord, how do you want me to live in this body that belongs to you? And he says, I want you to flee fornication. H how does this body belong to the Lord? Look at 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So as we think about God's plan of motherhood, we think about stewardship. God's plan is for every man and every woman to make sure that they're good stewards first with their own body. That they would not practice fornication. And in that is a blessing to God's plan down the road of one day what perhaps would be their family. Now let's look at another idea of stewardship as we take this a step further, if you will, turn over a book to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. It's page 1029 in the Bible that's in your pew. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. In verse 14 and 15, we learn how we also need to be good stewards with the relationships of which we engage in. In other words, the idea to say... It's my life. 
I'll do whatever I want. I'll, I will form relationships. I will date. I will one day marry. And it's based totally upon me. This may be something that some of you here have thought about in great detail for many, many years. And there may be some here that could honestly say, I've never thought about this in all my life. But do you realize God wants a say in who you date and who you marry because God wants a say in what kind of family that you form. In other words, for God, it's all about stewardship. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for your life. I have a purpose for your family. Will you listen to me? I have, where'd our life come from? Our life came from God. Where's our spiritual life come from? It's a gift from God. So he is the master. And now are we going to be good stewards with what he has given us? Where do relationships come from? God says, I want to give you righteous relationships. And so then the question is, will I be a good steward with the opportunities that God gives me to do this? Notice the strong words in 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And that's a synonym for Satan. And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Any kind of yoking. And is there any yoking that is any stronger that's for, to be for any greater duration of time than that of marriage. And he says, I want you to think about who are you yoked with? I want you to think about who are you in communion with? Who are you in fellowship with? The word communion simply means to share. Fellowship means to enjoy with or to, to be partners with. And definitely, this could apply in many relationships, but it has to apply in marriage because marriage is the greatest partnership that we ever participate in except for our partnership with God. And so he says, listen, not only am I concerned with what you do with your individual body, he says, I'm concerned with what you do with your life and as it is shared with other people. Why? Well, as we think about 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, we see in the text this morning how important it is that we get things in the order that God wants. That the younger widows, they were to marry, and then they bear children. Now, who are they going to bear children with? Well, according to what we've seen in, in Corinthians, they should bear children with other believers so that those children have believing parents. But now notice the third thing that is said to these women here. Manage the house. The word manage there is as strong of a word of management as you can find in the scriptures. In other words, this isn't some weaker Greek word that just happened to be brought over into English this strong. It means to rule. It means to lead. And so, and by the way, in the original text, it didn't say manage the house. The house is put on there to to, uh, in the English to help define what is meant here, probably more accurately, it should say manage the children. Because it's just been said that she'll marry, she'll bear children, and she'll manage those children. We know that the Lord gives the man in Ephesians 5 the ultimate responsibility of headship. But who is going to take care of managing? Let's think about just the way we use the word management today. You work in a company or, or a, a business. 
the manager of that business, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to be very much aware of what is the purpose of that business. Is this a consulting business? Is this a retail business? Is this a research and development business? Is this a business that, that actually produces some kind of product? Think about it. The management's going to know what is the purpose of this business. And the management, if they're going to do their job successfully, they're going to lead the people that are a part of their company to achieve whatever the purpose is. What's the purpose of your home? God's plan is for... The, the mothers to be able to know the purpose of the lives of their children and to manage to lead those children so that they grow closer to God. You remember when Paul spoke to Timothy? He said, from a child you have known the scriptures that, were, that would make you wise unto salvation. You see, his mother had managed his life in such a way that he knew the important things of God. He knew the responsibilities of his life and of his soul. And when we think about Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Who is to do that training? Obviously, the father and the mother, they need to know what are they working with? What are the boundaries that need to be put in place? What is the instruction that needs to be put in place? What is the motivation that needs to be put in place for the woman to be able to lead, to manage her children in the way God has planned? Now, we see another passage of Scripture. If you will, turn over to Titus. And we see in Titus, the second chapter, it's page 1059 in the Bibles in your pew. And you'll notice in Titus, the second chapter, we have what the older women, the great responsibility they have to teach the younger women. And there's a long list of things that they're to teach them, beginning there at verse 3. We see that the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now notice 4, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands. And that word love there is not the agape like we're usually accustomed to. The word love there is, is the affection. It's the bonding type of love. And so literally he's saying, that I want you older women to, to teach the younger women how to be affectionate towards your husband. And then he uses the very same word to talk about towards your children. I want the older to teach the younger women how to be affectionate toward their children. Um, maybe that's on those days that you'd like to wring their neck. And the older women could help you learn how to be more affectionate there. And, and notice what else you're supposed to be taught in verse 5. To be discreet, chaste. Now notice this. Homemakers, good, obedient in their own, uh, to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The older are to teach the younger to be homemakers. And when we think about the stewardship that God gives women who are mothers. God says, I want you to be the ones who manage the home. And then he says through the older women teaching the younger women, I want you to be homemakers. Does it break your heart when people, friends, Christians, 
our neighbors. Whenever something is so clearly taught in the Bible and people kind of mock it and they kind of laugh at it, that breaks my heart. And one of the things that breaks my heart so much because number one, it's just a mockery against God. And then number two, it's hurting our family so much is that we are creating a culture that esteems women higher if they're able to do something in the professional world more than esteeming that same woman for her success at home. There's never going to be a woman who achieves anything more important than being a homemaker. Nothing. A woman will never be more important than being a homemaker. And it just, it just makes me so aggravated. It just makes me want to kick something to see women be kind of sheepish about saying, I'm a homemaker. It's almost like they're expected to apologize. It's almost like, oh, that's all? Friends, there are so many things that a woman can accomplish today. And there are so many good things that a woman can be about. But if a woman misses that mark, and she is a mother, she has missed the most important mark that God has ever given to her. I hope I live long enough to see the day that women with great Pride in a good sense will say, I'm a homemaker. Oh, I may do some other things in my life, but nothing else is worth mentioning. I'm a homemaker. What is a homemaker? There's a lot of people that, that they can keep a house. There's a lot of people that can pay for a house. There's a lot of people that live in a house. But there's a huge difference in keeping a house and making a home. Home is where children get their roots. Home is where children literally find out who they are. Home is where every child wants to be whenever they think that home is lost. Home is what every person longed to have that never had a good one. Let that sink in. You don't know an adult that had a bad home life situation, and I don't care if they're 70 years old, what they want today, if you could ask them, if you could go back and change anything, what would you want? And they would say, I'd just like to have a good home growing up. Talk to the 20-somethings. Talk to the 30-somethings. Talk to the 40-somethings, the 50-somethings that did not have a good home growing up. What do they want? I just wanted a good home. Talk to every child that, that's pulled out into foster care. What do you want? Friends, they don't talk about the latest gaming system. They don't care about what school they might could one day attend. You talk to every kid that's pulled out into foster system, and what do they want? I want a home. I want a home. There's nothing, nothing more precious 
than home. It's designed by God. It's supposed to be nurtured by God. It's supposed to be built by God. And we say, God, how are you going to build a home? And God says, I'm going to call upon women to be good stewards. And I'm going to ask them at a young age, don't commit fornication. I'm going to ask them at a young age, make sure you involve your life only in righteous relationships. And then when they marry and they have children, I'm going to tell them it's your responsibility to manage these children. And then when they have that home, I'm going to tell them it doesn't just evolve. It doesn't just happen. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves and you're going to have to get in there and you're going to have to make home happen. Houses just happen. Birth just happens. But making a home... It doesn't just happen. Let's skip a slide now and let's drop down to Psalm 68 as we close this lesson. This morning, in an audience this size, there would be many of us that would be able to look back at past mistakes in our life and wish that we hadn't have made those mistakes and maybe see how those mistakes actually affect not only us, but they affect our children. They affect our spouses. They affect other family members. I hope you realize that we serve a gracious God. We serve a God that when we make mistakes, He's there to pick us up. He's there to actually substitute and fill in when we've made mistakes that creates absences. As a matter of fact, God says it in the most beautiful way in Psalm 68 and 5. The psalmist describes the Father in heaven and he says, He is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. You know, if there's something missing in your life and in your family, God says, I can offer you what's missing. You're missing a father in your life? God says, I'll adopt you and I'll be your father. You're missing a family in your life? God says, I specialize in bringing those who live an isolated life and they feel like they don't have someone, I specialize in bringing them in the midst of my family and giving them family. This morning, I hope you realize that all around you is God's family. We're all blessed to be adopted. We're all blessed to be His children. And I know I have heard some of you say before, I looked to some of the men in this congregation to be my father because I didn't have a spiritual father. I know some of you, you look for, for your children to enjoy spiritual grandparents here because maybe they don't have spiritual grandparents. And instead of, of feeling sorry for ourselves about that, isn't it wonderful to know that God designed it that way to say, you know what, I'm giving you a whole family here.
You got brothers and sisters. You got mother and father type figures. You got grandparents. You got uncles and aunts built into a family here. And that's God's plan. And now that becomes to all of us a type of stewardship. Are we going to be to each other what maybe the other is missing in their life? You see, not every mother type figure has given birth. There are a lot of mother type figures that have simply reached out and shared their life and shared their love to make a lasting difference in the lives of those about them. This morning, 